Saturday night, Fort Ord, California. I'm on CQ that night and I'm taking a walk around the buildings. As I get between the Alpha Company and Bravo Company building, there is a pickup truck, a Toyota pickup truck, parked on the big sidewalk that ran between the buildings. I hear someone yell, hey doc. I walk over. It's some of my buddies from Alpha Company in the front. I think there were two or three of them in the front seat. Probably none of them wearing seatbelts. You know, the guy in the middle dodging the gear shifter and stuff like that, trying not to take one in the uh, family jewels while you're heading up to San Jose, which is where they're going. Saturday night, San Jose, club night. Then I walk around to the back of the truck, the bed of the truck, and inside are three light fighters in their Gore-Tex sleeping bags. That's how they're getting up to San Jose. They're in their Gore-Tex sleeping bags, but they, it's like the pigs in a blanket. You know, they're just squished in there because of the wheel well. And you know, they got their dance clothes on under the Gore-Tex sleeping bags, and some are probably wearing their, their low quarters, the black patent leather shoes that some of us used as dress shoes on club night. I know I did at least once. These are the things we did when we were young and lean and mean and green. Welcome to Light Fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War. In the late 1980s, a group of young men who grew up without computers, cell phones, and social media will help end the Cold War. This is not based on a true story. This is a true story. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us again. I, I deleted the last episode. I was actually trying to replicate uh, what it was like on certain Thursday nights and tried to do the show in that mindset and it just doesn't work. There were some audio mistakes and editing things. So I will not try to try to replicate a Thursday night up in the barracks ever again while I'm recording. And so this is the real episode seven. And that story up front about the guys in the back of that pickup truck, just one of those things that I'll never forget. Now, uh, I want to remind everybody, keep an eye on the uh, 421 and the 7th ID Facebook pages. There are some reunions that are planned here and there, although I think it's still kind of tricky right now traveling with the whole on-again, off-again COVID-19 thing. If, if you are able to get to one of those reunions, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll have a lot of fun. Now, when we were not getting into Gore-Tex sleeping bags in the back of pickup trucks uh, for Saturday night club night up in San Jose, the majority of the time at Ford Ward, we were out rucking it up. R-U-C-K-I-N-G. We were out humping uh, the hills of wherever we went. Yes, humping for a PG-13 moment here. Well, there's a lot of that too, but when I say humping, I'm talking about the infantry term, humping that weight here and there. Well, the gentleman that basically wrote the book on light infantry tactics, at least helped write it, is going to join us. His name is, he's retired now, Colonel Harkins. Uh, He is a great guy to talk to. He's asked me to put his email and his phone number right there in the episode description. If you want to reach out to him, I'm sure he'd love to talk to you. Uh, But he was a second lieutenant back in Vietnam. He graduated from the Ohio State University, uh, did two tours in Vietnam. And by the time he got to Fort Ord, he was the battalion commander of the 332nd Infantry Battalion. That would turn into 
the 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry. We went from being bulldogs to gimlets. I always, I never cared for gimlet. I'm just going to be honest. I didn't think it sounded tough until I found out what it was. I thought it was a drink. You know, I thought it was a, a I thought vodka gimlet. But of course, we all know what a gimlet is. I want to thank Dan Palumbo for putting me in touch with Colonel Harkins. We're going to visit him and we're going to do it all right after this. And thank you for listening to Light Fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War, brought to you in part by Pork Patty MRE, 1.2 ounce of desiccated pork, a pig that was probably born sometime in the 1960s, comes complete with applesauce, chocolate-covered cookie, cheese-spread crackers, cocoa in a spoon, and accessory pack D. In the event of weapon malfunction, feel free to throw said Pork Patty at the enemy in that it is a lethal object. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. And we're joined now by Colonel Gerald Harkins. You heard me talk about his military career in the setup. Colonel Harkins, my dad was a graduate of the War College. I had a lot of conversations with my dad about the Cold War and the capabilities of the Russians. And it was all about tanks and submarines and ICBMs. We never talked about the Army. We never talked about it at all because he was an Air Force guy. But in truth, as I said in the first episode, the light infantry was a tactical necessity in the overall strategic goals of the United States to stop tolerating communism, but under the Reagan administration to actually roll back the expansion of communism, especially in Central America. Colonel Harkins, tell us why light infantry was so important in those latter years of the Cold War. I think you have to go to October of 1983, I believe it was, when the United States invaded Grenada, uh, the island of Grenada. Uh, The 82nd participated in that, Rangers participated in that, Rangers did a fantastic job, SEALs and all the special operators. But there was a concern that came out of Grenada about the inability of the infantry to close with and destroy the enemy over the last 100 yards of combat. So Mm. the focus had been, as you were mentioning, on the the battle in Europe. I mean, everything, airland battle and all that, had focused on the war in Europe, which was going to be a tank battle and a Bradley-slash-APC war. And the infantry was just going to be there to protect the tanks and protect the, uh, 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 the, the, the other mechanized vehicles. So the question is, you got one of your elite units, the 82nd Airborne Division, and they demonstrate that uh, in Grenada that they don't really know how to close with and destroy the enemy. Get one sniper around, you call in the 8th Air, Air Force or something. <laughs> what they did, they, they told the 82nd and the 101st, just go ahead and continue to, who was basically light infantry, both of those were paratrooper infantry and air mobile air assault infantry. Uh, they told both of those to go ahead and continue to train. They went to the worst division in the United States Army, the 7th Infantry Division. And I say worst because it was the lowest on the priority list, the master priority list, the DAMPL as it was called back in those days. So they, they turned the training floodlights and uh, school and equipment floodlights all on the 7th Infantry Division. And when I took command in June of 83, we were scheduled to become a cohort unit. And uh, so we were progressing down the road to a cohort. 
when uh, the, the, the the notification came that we were going to switch to a light infantry model. Uh, and the, the light infantry model was train people how to fight as soldiers in that last 100 meters of terrain, uh, not, you know, the, sit in an overwatch position miles away or 100 yards away and shoot, but to close with and destroy and how to operate behind enemy lines and how to fight guerrilla forces. So thus the, in 83, before I became the head of the Light Infantry Task Force in 86, uh, we began to formulate training plans and training doctrine in terms of how to reteach soldiers how to fight. Uh, foremost in that was teaching the leaders how to train. The Light Leader course was developed at Fort Benning, Georgia. I took my leadership to Fort Benning, Georgia it would have been in 80, late, early or spring of 84, uh, and retaught the leaders how to train. So when the cohort unit came, they felt on the leadership of the battalion, uh, but the leadership of the battalion had been trained and, and it made for the ability then of the leaders to know how to train the cohort soldiers when they got into Fort Ord. Let me ask you something, Colonel Harkins. Since you served in Vietnam, and anybody that joins the Army in the early 1980s, it's been a solid decade since troops were in the field, as you put it, closing on the enemy that last 100 meters. Why do you think that the, the infantry had lost that, that skill, that killer instinct? Was it just the amount of time since Vietnam, or was there something in the training that was no longer stressing that? I think that there was a couple of things. One, we lost a tremendous amount of leadership at the NCO Corps in Vietnam, uh, either casualties or just got out of the Army. Uh, there was also the perception that we're not going to fight that type of war anymore. We're going to fight the battle on the plains of Europe. So the focus went to how to, how to, how to, fund, how to operate the, the Bradley and the Abrams tank. Uh, I was a company commander on a, in a battle in May of 69 called Hamburger Hill. Uh, that battle kind of epitomized our, that la what that last 100 meters really looks like of attacking a 45 position. But we hadn't trained in terms of doing that even in Vietnam. We, we just kind of got up and put our rucksacks on and went and fought the enemy wherever we could find it. So there was, there, there was a whole generation of training that was lost in terms of how to function, how to fight as infantry. Well, I'm going to ask you this, too. I want to talk about training. When, when I talk to people uh, that have been listening to the podcast that may have started their career at Fort Ord or were continuing their military career at Fort Ord, they all talk about how tough and consistent the training was at Fort Ord, you had a lot to do with that. Tell us why it had to be tough and how you helped basically write the book on light infantry tactics. Well, it was, it was a ton of people that worked on putting together the training program. But the concept behind it all was that a light infantry unit should be able to fight by itself as best you can with air support and stuff like that, but not absence of, of vehicles. Uh, for example, I took the battalion to Panama in uh, 84, and we had a mix-up in training and stuff like that, so we had a week to kill. So we spent the week walking from 
uh, Howard Air Force Base to Fort Sherman on the on Howard Air Force Base on the Pacific side, and walked across the canal to uh, Fort Sherman on the Atlantic side. How far? Now that uh, about sixty-seven miles. Yeah, I've heard, I heard about that. I heard about this. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. The whole idea was to teach to teach the battalion, from my perspective, to prepare the battalion to to do the the hard jobs. So we we did the Panama walk. We also did a walk from Fort uh, from uh, Fort Hunter Liggett back to Fort Ord, uh, which was a oh. hundred miler. Yeah, and, I know how far uh, that is. And 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 we culminated that exercise with a a. Uh, uh, an attack on a fortified position uh, just to show people, look, you can walk 100 miles in three in four days and still attack when you get there. And the reason you're doing the walk is to attack. We, uh, uh, the, we had the opportunity to go to Korea, and the battalion was, uh, was designated as a stay-behind battalion, so we let the, the Red Force, was attacked through us, and then we raided their, their supply chains and uh, their base camps behind them and literally brought the exercise to a halt. Uh, but the idea was to train people how to fight. I, I got, uh, at one point in time, I had a close to 100 Rangers in the battalion, and the Ranger School was very important to teach people that they could do things when they don't think they can do them anymore. Uh, Fortunately, uh, the guy that ran the uh, ranger school at the time was a guy by the name of Colonel Tex Turner. Tex had been my boss when I was in the ranger department. He promoted me to captain. So a very special relationship there. He had a lot of help to help me get the guys through ranger school. Uh, we, we, we were known as the, the Ruck-Up Battalion. We, we put our rucksacks on our backs and we walked to war. And uh, we trained to fight hard. No, I, I certainly remember that. I've, I've rucked up plenty of times myself. In fact, when I heard I was going down to JOTC in Panama at Fort Sherman in 1987, I was actually fearful that we were going to have to do that same isthmus uh, walk, walk across the isthmus of Panama. We did a lot of hard training. We didn't do that. I think my longest walk was actually at the National Training Center, but that's a whole other episode. I want to go back to... Um, the late 1980s when I'm at Ford Ford. As I said, my, my father was a graduate of the War College. I was always very interested in military history, American military history. I, I believed very, very earnestly that the Americans were the good guys in the Cold War. But in 1988, there is a, there's a situation where the communist group in Nicaragua chased the pro-American group, the Contra rebels, into Honduras, which was supposed to be sort of a safe haven, not a place that the, the Nicaraguans were supposed to be, Honduras being an ally of the United States. And I remember we sent some, I think it was the 9th Regiment, that went down there um, to do what was basically built as a live fire exercise in a full view of, of the Nicaraguans. I've always thought that's one of the most under-discussed turning points in the Cold War. I think it demonstrated to people that the Army had turned a corner since Vietnam and was not to be messed with. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's true. I, you know, it, it was an operation that was not well discussed. Uh, 
from 86 to uh, 88, I was the head of the Light Infantry Task Force out of Fort Benning, Georgia. And we wrote the, the drill books and the field manuals for the Light Infantry. And that operation and then what later with the Gulf War uh, was an opportunity to see the training doctrine that we put together and the methodology that we put together uh, being utilized. Uh, I, I wrote 770, which was a platoon and, uh, and, and, and squad uh, uh, field manual in, in a format that could go in your cargo pocket of your BDUs. And I, I was unheard of. I had, <laughs> I had a fight to get that done. And my, my whole thought was that we need leaders to take these manuals to the field with them so when they're training, they've got checklists they can drill and drill and drill and drill on and get them down right. So I think that uh, the, the light infantry has showed itself well in, in that operation in Nicaragua, the operation in Panama, and uh, 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 the Gulf War, and more importantly, it's still being you know, some of the, although they've changed the, the format of the books and stuff like that, it's still being taught. I had two boys that were in the in the 101st and in the uh, 173rd and the 25th, um, but they they used the training literature that we had developed back in the 80s. That's fascinating to me. The uh, there's another operation you mentioned again doesn't get a lot of attention because I think mostly because it happened around Christmas time, December of 1989. Basically, those two weeks when no one's paying attention to anything between Christmas and New Year's, the United States. Um, invades the friendly country of Panama. It was that operation that really told me I was already out of the active duty army by that time, but when I got to college in 1990 and people were arguing about the Americans' ability to win the Gulf War, I told everybody that would listen, it's not even going to be close. That the, 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 the military that you heard about, the military that you've seen lampooned on television in MASH and Private Benjamin and Strike, that is not the army that has taken the field these days. And so I was very happy to hear you say that. What I wanted to ask you in closing, we are all familiar today with things that we could not have dreamt of in Panama or Fort Benning or Fort Ord or Australia or Hawaii or any of the places that we went. GPS, satellite technology, all of the electronic technology, optics, the combined arms, uh, that wonderful combined arms mentality of the U.S. military. What I want to ask you, is light infantry still relevant today? Is there still going to be that situation where you've got to close that last 100 meters and kill the enemy? I think it's, it's always going to be relevant. Uh, you know, we can have the over-the-horizon look that uh, the administration keeps talking about now, but you need intelligence and you need boots on the ground to occupy ground uh, if you're going to transition thing. I think where we get screwed up is when we transfer our military into a nation-building role and lose uh, mm -hmm. on, on the combat mission. Somebody else needs to be the nation-builder. We need to be the combat multiplier. And one other comment, if I could, we we had a meeting with the TRADOC commander, John Fossey, and, uh, uh, when I was a battalion commander, and everybody was talking about new ideas and weaponry and explosive techniques and everything like that. And I raised the question, I said, you know, I'm wearing a pair of jungle boots from Vietnam that I had when I was a captain. 
that's that you got the choice between jungle boots and leather boots. What we need is new boots. We need new poncho liners. We need stuff for infantry because we still carry 120 pounds on our back, and that's always yes, going to be the way. With the- Absolutely. Sure. I might, this is obviously just a, a question that nobody can really know the answer to. Uh, but I know that when I was at Fort Ord, we, we held ourselves up. It, we wanted to be as good as the, as the guys had been in Vietnam. How do you think the uh, light fighter division would have done in the jungles of Vietnam? I think they've done very well. Uh, the Vietnam War is kind of about you know, 21-year battles, much like people are talking about Afghanistan right now, not one continuous war, but just one individual year-long war. The right. the light fighter, there was, the thing that had set at least my battalion apart was the concept we believed that we were good, we knew our job, and we executed our tasks very well. You could always tell the 3rd Battalion, 32nd Infantry, by the camouflage nets on our helmet. Yep, the Labak tops. Yep, that was something that I uh, I thought was very unique when I arrived. I, I'll always be proud of my time at Fort Ord. Uh, like a lot of people associate their college years as their alma mater, although I graduated from the University of Texas at San Antonio. I always tell people my alma mater will always be Fort Ord, California, and the 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry. Colonel Harkins, I was so glad to get a chance to talk to you. Um, I, I guess you could say I benefited from that hard training, although I don't know that I felt like it was a benefit when I was at 140 pounds, carrying about 140 pounds on my back. Um, but it did convince me that I could do things that I didn't know was possible. I graduated from light leaders course. I was the only medic they gave a certificate to because I did every single thing the guys did. And I got to tell you, when I when I think about the transformational moments in my life, they all seem to go back to Ford Ward. And so it was really great to get an opportunity to speak to somebody like you who had that executive level view of what was happening to us on the ground. And we didn't really always understand the bigger strategic picture. We just knew we were walking a long way, carrying a lot of stuff, but it certainly made me a much better person for the balance of my life. And I want to thank you so much for everything, all of your service and all of your time today on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, Jason, thank you very much for the opportunity and love to hear from some of the guys. Light fighter. I had such a great time getting to know Colonel Harkins, uh, both on and off the air. And his uh, phone number and email, like I said, are right there in the episode description. I encourage you to reach out to him. If you served with him, I'm sure he'd love to chat with you. And it was just great to have him on the podcast. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Light Fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War. Until next time, my name is Jason Dias. No slack. Cold steel. Bushmasters and Night Fighters, Boar Brother Boar.
Rucka by Fighters. 